you, David. Thank you all. Boy, after that introduction, I can't wait to hear what I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> well, let me, let me start with a big idea. Fire made us human. Fossil fuels made us modern. Now we need a new fire that can make us safe, secure, and durable. So Rocky Mountain Institute aims to shift the United States, for starters, completely off oil and coal by 2050 to efficient use and renewable energy. And our peer-reviewed uh, grand synthesis of how to do that, which I will be signing over at the bookstore right after this, was just released around today, uh, details how saving and displacing fossil fuels can work better and cost less than buying and burning them. You know, we are burning every year to run the world economy about four cubic miles of the rotted remains of primeval swamp goo and dinosaur poop. Uh, surely there's a better way to do this. <laughs> now, four-fifths of today's energy comes from that four cubic miles a year of fossil fuel. It has built our civilization, it's created our wealth, it has enriched the lives of billions. But its rising costs to our security, economy, health, environment are eroding and starting to outweigh the benefits. So we need a new fire. This is what our energy system looks like today. Disconnected, aging, inefficient. It needs refurbishment. Switching from the old fire to the new fire takes two big shifts one in oil, one in electricity. And these stories are actually distinct because less than 1% of our oil, but 95% of our coal, makes electricity. Oil and power stations each release about two-fifths of the fossil carbon going in the air. Three-fourths of our electricity runs buildings. Three-fourths of our oil fuels mobility. Uh, and the rest of the electricity and oil go to factories. So very efficient vehicles, buildings, and factories save oil and gas, and also save natural gas that can be used to displace oil and coal. So the system we envisage for 2050 is efficient, connected, distributed, super efficient autos, uh, and buildings and factories will all rely on a secure, modern, resilient electricity system and there will be no need for coal or oil or even nuclear energy once efficiency and renewables end our addiction to fossil fuels. Now, creating the core industries of this new energy era could cost $5 trillion less in net present value than business as usual, and yet support a 158% bigger economy, 2.6 times today's, if you can envisage that. We're not, by the way, saying this is necessarily a good idea. We're just following the official projections. So we have a apples to apples comparison with business as usual. And this transition we found would need no new inventions, no new federal taxes, mandates, subsidies, or laws. So it end runs Washington gridlock. Uh, and it assumes that carbon emissions and all other externalities are worth zero, a conservatively low estimate. Uh, so let me, let me say that again. I'm going to tell you how to uh, get the United States completely off oil and coal 
$5 trillion cheaper with no act of Congress led by business for profit. So whether you, whether you care most about profits and jobs and competitive advantage or about national security or about climate and environmental stewardship and public health, this makes sense and makes money. General Eisenhower allegedly said that uh, expanding the boundaries of a tough problem <clears throat> makes it soluble by encompassing more options, more degrees of freedom, more synergies. So reinventing fire integrates all four energy using sectors, uh, transportation, buildings, industry, and electricity, and it integrates four kinds of innovation not just technology and policy, but also design, the way technologies are combined, and business strategy, new competitive strategies, new business models. And these combinations turn out to yield much more than the sum of their parts, especially in deeply disruptive business opportunities. Now, America is burning oil, let's start there, costing $2 billion a day, but then it has hidden costs of $4 billion a day in three roughly equal parts uh, that are paid through our taxes or wealth or health. Uh, that's $4 trillion a day. Well, let's see, add that to the price of the oil. That's one and a half, that's over $2 trillion a year in, th six, in three roughly equal parts. Now, the first half trillion dollars a year of hidden cost is the cost of the treasure transfer and the dislocation of our economy whenever there's an oil price shop. So macroeconomic costs of our oil dependence add up to about a half trillion dollars a year. Uh, a lot of that is through OPEC's monopoly pricing that our oil dependence makes possible. The second half trillion dollars a year is the market value of oil's price volatility. That's a cost and a risk to everybody that uses oil. Uh, volatile oil prices uh, whipsaw everybody in the economy and indeed uh, you can see that the oil price spikes in yellow precede every recession in red for the last 40 years. We also pay a half trillion dollars a year, the third part, to sustain military forces whose primary mission is intervention in the Persian Gulf. We have, of course, other national interests in the Persian Gulf than just oil, but it's hard to believe we would have just invaded there twice if Kuwait and Iraq just grew broccoli. Uh, <laughs> uh, and this, uh, this military cost of our oil dependence, not even counting, by the way, the corresponding military cost, the oil defense missions in every combatant command around the world, uh, those add up to 10 times what we're paying for oil from the Persian Gulf. And they rival our total defense spending at the height of the Cold War. What's wrong with this picture? Oil, by the way, is also finite. The Pentagon is preparing to need no oil, and the rest of us should too, uh, even if oil were not costing us, directly and indirectly, a sixth of GDP, uh, plus whatever it's worth for its damage to uh, health, environment, security, national independence, national reputation. Remember, we're counting all these externalities at zero, just looking at market prices. Okay, so automobiles use three-fifths of our mobility fuel. How can we make autos oil-free? Two-thirds of the energy needed to move a typical two-ton steel auto is caused by its weight. 
For the past quarter century, though, epidemic obesity has made our two-ton steel autos gain weight twice as fast as we have. <laughs> but ultralight, ultra-strong materials like carbon fiber composites can make dramatic weight-saving snowball and can make autos simpler and cheaper to build. Lighter, more slippery autos also need less force to move them so their propulsion system shrinks and such vehicle fitness then makes electric autos affordable because their batteries or fuel cells get smaller and lighter and cheaper. Super efficient electric autos uh, will ultimately match today's autos in sticker price and they'll cost a great deal less to drive. Now, these innovations can transform automakers from uh, wringing tiny savings out of Victorian steel stamping and engine technologies to the steeply falling costs of three mutually reinforcing technologies, the ultralight materials, the technologies for making them into structures, and the electric propulsion. So sales can grow and prices drop very quickly, but especially with a temporary fee bait. That means a rebate uh, for efficient new autos paid for by fees on inefficient ones. In the first two years, uh, the biggest of five European fee bait programs has tripled the speed of improving automotive efficiency. Now, the resulting shift to electric autos is going to be as game-changing as shifting from small refinements in uh, electric typewriters to the Moore's Law-driven gains in computers. Computers and electronics, of course, are now our biggest industry, while typewriter makers have vanished. So vehicle fitness opens a new automotive competitive strategy that can double our oil savings over the next 40 years and thereby make affordable the electrification that can save the rest of the oil. And leaders are going to beat laggards just as uh, Toyota's bold jump into hybrids 14 years ago is still challenging competitors to catch up, uh, only faster because hybrid cars have only one learning curve, not three reinforcing each other. America could, of course, lead this next automotive revolution. Currently, the leader is Germany. Uh, this year, Volkswagen announced 2013 production of this 230-mile-a-gallon carbon fiber plug-in hybrid. And BMW announced, uh, <laughs> BMW recently announced 2013 mass production of this carbon fiber electric car and confirmed that its carbon fiber is paid for by its needing fewer batteries. And their CEO said, we do not intend to be a typewriter maker. Uh, Audi claimed it's going to beat both those companies by a year. Now, even <coughs> faster and cheaper new manufacturing technologies like those we used seven years ago, one of our spinoffs to make this carbon fiber test piece. You can tell it's really strong and stiff. Makes a good carbon cap. Uh, <laughs> and we made this in less than one minute. So technologies that can do that now offered by uh, and a growing number of companies can scale to automotive speed and cost with aerospace performance and can save four-fifths of the capital needed for automaking because it radically simplifies the automaking process. Uh, <clears throat> now, the same physics and the same business logic also apply to bigger vehicles. Walmart saved 60% of the fuel in its truck fleet, the biggest civilian fleet in the world, in the past five years. That included some logistical savings. But just the technological fuel saving can rise to two-thirds, and together with 
double and triple efficiency or better airplanes that are coming at us can save almost a trillion dollars net present value. And then there's today's military revolution, which we'll talk about in the National Security Panel late this afternoon uh, with David Orr. And, and that revolution in, mil in, in military energy efficiency is going to speed these civilian advances. Remember, the civilian economy uses 50-odd times more oil than the military does, so that's a lot of leverage. And it'll be very much like when uh, military research gave us things like the internet and GPS and the jet engine and microchip industries that have transformed the civilian economy. So <clears throat> this is uh, a very good way to lead the nation off oil, a huge national security win. Uh, and you can imagine the warfighters really like the idea of nega missions in the Persian Gulf, mission unnecessary, no more oil guarding missions in far off Now, as we, as we design and build vehicles better, we can also use them smarter. This is a graph of the morning and evening rush hours, the degree of traffic congestion we suffer. And if that were an electricity load shape, how much IT-enabled uh, demand response and pricing and smart grid stuff will we throw at it to try to flatten it out? But by not yet doing that for road travel, uh, we are wasting many billions of dollars a year in idle people, idle vehicles, and idle roads. But <clears throat> we now have four powerful ways to cut needless driving. We can charge uh, real-time driving infrastructure costs per mile, not per gallon. We can use smart IT to enhance transit and enable car sharing and ride sharing. We can allow lucrative smart growth real estate models so more people are already where they want to be and don't need to go somewhere else. Uh, and we can also use intelligent transportation systems to make traffic free-flowing. And together, these proven methods can give us the same or better access with 46 to 84 percent less driving, saving another $0.4 trillion, plus another $0.3 trillion from using trucks more productively. So 40 years hence, a far more mobile U.S. economy, look at the assumptions we use up there, uh, <coughs> can use no oil and save $4 trillion. Those 125 to 240 mile per gallon equivalent cars can run on any mixture of electricity, hydrogen fuel cells, and advanced biofuels. Uh, trucks and airplanes can realistically run on hydrogen or advanced biofuels. Trucks can even run on natural gas, but none of these vehicles will need oil. Uh, and the Biofuels we might need at most, this little bit, three million barrels a day, can be grown uh, without using any cropland and without harming climate or soil fertility. In fact, doing it right, you take carbon out of the air, stick it back in tilth where it belongs, and pay the farmers and ranchers for doing that. Now, our team speeds up these kinds of oil savings by what we call institutional acupuncture. We figure out where the business logic is congested and not flowing properly. We stick little needles in it to get it flowing, uh, <laughs> working with uh, partners like Ford and Walmart and the Pentagon. And I, I think most of the six sectors that need to be transformed are already at or near their tipping point. In fact, a couple of years ago, mainstream analysts started to see peak oil, but on the demand side. Uh, and indeed, uh, Deutsche Bank even forecast world oil use is going to peak at about another five years. In short, oil is becoming uncompetitive even at low prices before it becomes unavailable even at high prices. Uh, 
But electrified autos don't need to burden the electricity system. Rather, when we have smart vehicles exchanging electricity and information through smart buildings with smart grids, that adds valuable storage and flexibility resources to the grid that make it a lot easier uh, to integrate uh, wind and solar power. So it's a lot easier to solve the auto and electricity problems together than separately. If you can't solve the problem, make it bigger. So electrified autos converge the oil story for the first time with our second big story, uh, saving electricity and then making it differently. And those twin revolutions promise more numerous, diverse, and profound disruptions in electricity than in any other sector because you've got 21st century technology and speed colliding with 20th and 19th century uh, <coughs> institutions, rules, and cultures. Changing how we make electricity gets a lot easier if we need less of it. And today, electricity is mostly wasted, and efficiency technologies keep improving faster than we install them, so the efficiency resource still to be captured keeps getting bigger and cheaper. In fact, over the next 40 years, our buildings can triple their energy productivity, saving 1.4 trillion net present value dollars with a 33% internal rate of return. The savings are worth four times what they cost to achieve. Uh, industry can double its energy productivity with an internal rate of return of 21%. But there's actually an even more disruptive innovation we've been hatching at RMI called integrative design. And that can often make very big energy savings even cheaper than small or no savings. So it can turn diminishing returns when you invest in efficiency into expanding returns. That's how our retrofit last year is saving over two-fifths of the energy in the Empire State Building. Uh, remanufacturing its six and a half thousand windows on site into super windows that are almost perfect in letting in light without heat, uh, plus better lights and office equipment and such, cut the peak cooling load by a third. And then renovating smaller chillers rather than adding bigger ones saved $17 million of capital costs helping to pay for everything else and reducing the payback time to just three years. And if you renovate a typical, say, Chicago, all glass and no windows office tower this way, uh, you can save three-fourths of its energy at lower cost than the regular 20-year renovation that saves nothing. Now, the same approach can increase the half trillion dollars of conventional uh, energy savings in industry. For example, three-fifths of the world's electricity runs motors. Half of that runs pumps and fans. And we can save about half of all motor energy with about a one-year payback by integrating 35 improvements. But even bigger, cheaper uh, <coughs> savings that are normally ignored can be captured first. For example, pumps, the biggest use of motors, move liquids through pipes. Uh, and a colleague of ours redesigned a typical uh, pumping loop in, this is a Dutch company, uh, to use at least 86% less pumping energy and cost less to build, not by getting better pumps, often worthwhile, but by replacing long, thin, crooked pipes with fat, short, straight pipes. This is not rocket science, this is good Victorian engineering rediscovered. And, and that's how these odd-looking pipes in Singapore saved 69% of the pumping energy. It's how some new pipes we put in our house saved about 97% of pumping energy, all at lower cost. So what does such savings mean for the electricity that is three-fifths used in motors? Well, <clears throat> from the coal at the power plant 
through all these compounding losses, uh, only a tenth of the energy gets through. So you need 100 units of fuel at the power plant to get 10 units of flow out of the pipe. But suppose we turn those losses from left to right around backwards into compounding savings from right to left. Every unit of flow or friction you save in the pipe saves 10 units of uh, fuel and cost and pollution and what Hunter Levins calls global weirding back at the power plant. And also, as you go back upstream, every component gets smaller, so it gets cheaper. So you save the most capital. Our team has lately found these kinds of snowballing energy savings in over $30 billion worth of industrial redesigns in uh, everything from data centers and ship fabs to mines and refineries. Typically, our retrofit designs save about 30 to 60 percent of the energy with a two or three year payback. Uh, and our new facility designs save 40 to 90 odd percent with generally lower capital cost. Now, as efficiency gains in buildings and factories start to outpace economic growth, the electricity use actually starts to shrink a bit, even with electrified autos. And this will ease and speed the shift to new sources of electricity, chiefly renewables. China leads the explosive growth and the plummeting prices shown here of uh, renewable generators. In fact, some of those, you see the, the, the red solar cell module cost for crystal and silicon, that just fell off the bottom of the chart in the last few weeks, under a dollar a watt. Uh, solar and wind power are marketplace winners today. And already in a dozen states, private installers, which Google has just announced it will join the finance for, can put those cheap photovoltaics on your house's roof with no money down and guarantee to beat your utility bill. And such, uh, <coughs> such, such unregulated products can deliver you a virtual utility that bypasses power companies uh, just as cell phones bypass wireline phone companies. Of course, this sort of thing gives utility executives the heebie-jeebies in it. It gives uh, venture capitalists sweet dreams. Uh, the, the flip side of those falling prices is the explosive growth of renewables, as you see in these graphs of uh, additions to world capacity. While the orders for uh, central stations fade away because they have too much cost and they have too much financial risk. In fact, renewables have added half of all the new generating capacity in the world in the past three years. Uh, and last year, just the renewables except Big Hydro got $151 billion of private investment. Uh, they surpassed installed global nuclear capacity uh, by adding 60 billion watts, which coincidentally is the amount of solar cell manufacturing capacity that we're going to have by the end of December worldwide. 60 billion watts a year, and that number's been going up 65% a year for a decade. Uh, <clears throat> now, power sources that get their economies from mass production, not from giant units, have already swapped their share of global generation uh, with nuclear power. And in fact, in 2008, MicroPower made 91% of the world's new electricity. Even before uh, Fukushima, uh, new US nuclear plants couldn't raise any private capital despite 100 plus percent subsidies because they have no business case. But without them, I, uh, I, I want to I show you two a little more techie and detailed graphs. Uh, uh, without nuclear, how could we displace the nearly half our electricity that's made from coal, uh, which I'll show as a magenta line. So the, the uh, 
finish line we need to cross is one unit into that graph. So first come options that are cheaper than running an old coal plant. Uh, using electricity uh, nationwide as productively as the top 10 states actually did six years ago would save 65% of our coal-fired electricity. Even more could be profitably saved. And it's also now cheaper to run coal plants less and existing very efficient gas plants more. And that cost gap will widen, saving 35% of coal-fired electricity at a profit. Uh, so let's see, 35 plus 65, that's 100. So we can already eliminate the old coal-fired power plants cheaper than just running them. Well, next come options that are cheaper than new coal power. Wind power now awaiting interconnection could save two-fifths of the coal power. All the profitable wind power on available land uh, could displace coal power 19 times over, plus other renewables we haven't even counted yet. And then there are some options that cost more today than a new coal plant, but they wouldn't by the time you could build one. Uh, solar cells are like that. And, uh, <coughs> oh, and I, I, I haven't even counted a lot of cogeneration, by the way. Um, cogeneration in industry can save two-thirds of the coal power. Uh, but photovoltaics uh, that would cost less than new coal by the time you could build it, uh, if you put them on 3% of U.S. structures, that would displace all our annual coal-fired electricity and use no land. So add all that up, and we have profitable non-nuclear ways to displace coal power more than 23 times, or coal plus nuclear 16 times. Once suffices. <laughs> now, <clears throat> we are often told that only those big coal and nuclear plants could keep the lights on because they are 24-7 while wind power and photovoltaics are variable and hence, we're told, unreliable. But actually, there isn't any such thing as a 24-7 generator. They all break. Uh, coal and nuclear plants fail about 10 to 14 percent of the time, losing typically a billion watts in milliseconds, often for weeks or months and often without warning. And grids are designed to and do routinely handle that kind of intermittence by backing up failed plants with working plants. And grids can, in exactly the same way, handle the forecastable variations in solar and wind power. Uh, <clears throat> in fact, our team's hourly simulations have shown that very large renewable fractions can deliver highly reliable power uh, when they're forecasted and integrated and diversified by type and by location. So, for example, after efficiency makes the Texas summer loads smaller and less peaky, uh, we can install, say, wind and green, solar power in yellow, and they will not exactly match the load. But flexible demand and smart charging and discharging of electrified autos can mesh all the moving parts, even with, in this case, 86% variable renewables, or even more if we use more of the demand response resource. And the other 14% or less, just the little aqua bits, uh, can come from dispatchable renewables like geothermal, small hydro, solar thermal electric, even from, say, feedlot biogas burned at existing gas turbines. And some utilities already routinely integrate uh, variable renewables in this way. 8% wind power last year in Texas, 38% at the Minkota Power Cooperative. Portugal is 45% renewable power. Denmark, 36, of which 26 comes from wind. Spain, 16 wind powered. Actually, one region's up to 25% solar powered already. And the, these places have proven the choreography of variable and flexible resources that can reliably turn uh, a mix of variable generators into serving steady loads, not in the traditional way, giant fossil fuel to nuclear plants, 
but with newer resources that meet even better the classical criterion for so-called baseload plants, namely they're the cheapest ones to run, so you run them whenever they're available. Uh, now, reinventing fire explores four electricity futures that differ very little in net present valued cost, the red box at the upper right over the next 40 years, $6 trillion to build and run the power system we need to rebuild anyway. Uh, and they vary from business as usual to a new nuclear and so-called clean coal future to centralized renewables to distributed renewables. Uh, the first scenario has a high climate risk. The first two have high financial and technology risks. The first three are very vulnerable to cascading and potential nation-shattering blackouts, whether caused by solar storms or other natural disasters or terrorist attacks. Uh, but that risk disappears, sorry, as, as the, the fourth scenario, the uh, distributed renewables, uh, <coughs> reorganizes the grid into lo local microgrids that are netted in such a way that normally they operate interconnected, but they can stand alone at need. The system that Denmark and Cuba have been using to improve their electric resilience. Uh, and this scenario also manages all the other risks. It costs about the same as business as usual, and it maximizes customer choice, entrepreneurial opportunity, and innovation. So together, efficient use and diverse dispersed renewable supply are turning the whole electricity system on its head. Uh, because traditionally, utilities would build giant coal and nuclear plants, augment them with big gas plants, maybe buy a little efficiency renewables. Uh, and those utilities were rewarded, as they still are in 36 states, uh, for selling you more electricity, just as dumb as it sounds. Uh, but now, especially where regulators reward cutting your bills, the market is shifting massively toward other way up. Efficiency, renewables, cogeneration, ways to blend them all together reliably with less transmission and little or no bulk electricity storage. Indeed, four German states last year were 43 to 52 percent wind powered. And U.S. and European analyses confirm that 80 to 100 percent renewable electricity is feasible, reliable, and cost effective. These, these, these best buys are also the most effective and quick solutions to climate change, nuclear proliferation, uh, energy insecurity, energy poverty. So now combine the electricity and oil revolutions that I've sketched and efficient buildings and factories and efficiently using directly burned fuels. And you have the really big story, reinventing fire, where uh, business uh, enabled and sped by smart policies in mindful markets in coevolution with civil society can lead the United States completely off oil and coal by 2050, saving $5 trillion, much risk and insecurity, and by the way, 82 to 86 percent of the fossil carbon emissions. So our energy future is not fate, but choice, and that choice is very flexible. In 1976, in the Foreign Affairs article David mentioned, uh, government industry all insisted that the energy needed to make a dollar of GDP could never go down. And I said, well, actually, it could go down several fold. That was pretty heretical. But here's what actually happened. It's dropped by half so far with a lot more to come. And to solve the energy problem, we just needed to enlarge it. And the results may at first seem incredible, but, you know, as Marshall McLuhan said, only puny secrets need protection. Big discoveries are protected by public incredulity. <laughs> uh, Rocky Mountain Institute's implementation initiatives are helping smart companies do these things faster. 
Of course, there is still a lot of old thinking out there. Oilman Morris Strong said not all the fossils are in the fuel. Uh, but DuPont's uh, former chairman, Edgar Willard, reminded us that firms hampered by old thinking won't be a problem because they simply won't be around long term. Uh, now, what I've described is not simply a once in a civilization business opportunity, the biggest infrastructure shift ever. It is also one of the most profound transformations in the history of our species. Humans are inventing a new fire, not uh, dug from below, but flowing from above. Not scarce, but bountiful. Not local, but everywhere. Not transient, but permanent. Not costly, but free. And but for a little biofuel grows in ways, grown in ways that, that sustain and endure, this new fire is flameless. Used efficiently, it can do our work without working our undoing. So please consider how we can together help make the world fairer, richer, cooler, and safer by reinventing fire. Thank you.